on in the Canons of Dort. Here where we left off uh, under the headings, uh, we're really looking at uh, total depravity and irresistible grace. And uh, I've had some interesting interactions uh, with a, a fella uh, who's posted some um, some comments about some text of scripture. I, I asked him to exegete, and uh, his comments don't um, don't actually exegete the passages at all. Um, so I, I may wait and see if he posts anything else. But I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to respond to everything on that, but. We'll see. I'd like to press on here. Uh, article number five, and again, this is under the heading of total depravity or human corruption, uh, which is uh, really addressing that man is not able, because of original sin, he's not able to convert himself. Uh, we talked last time a little bit about the concept of prevenient grace, that being the idea that, um, yeah, the Bible does teach that man is not able to respond to God, but he does this he does this prevenient work of grace on everyone, and that makes it possible for him to overcome all these dis- disability passages, all of the not able passages. Man's not able to believe, he's not able to repent, he's not able to see the things of God, he's not able to enter the kingdom, he's so on and so forth, not able to come to Christ. But this prevenient work of grace does that. We've seen the scriptures nowhere teach this concept. John 1, 9, uh, the, the true light, the giving light uh, to every man coming into the world, uh, does not teach that concept. Uh, so we're looking at uh, human corruption, the fall, um, its effects on man, that man is disabled. Um, he can't come to Christ. He can't repent, etc. And also a conversion. Um, what is conversion? How does that work? And uh, we're going to see that because man is not able and man is enslaved to sin, it can only happen um, through a miraculous work of God. It is not a work that assists man or that makes it possible for man to do this or that, but it is an effectual and powerful thing. And I just want to emphasize to people that this really is what was recovered in the Reformation. All the Reformed confessions were agreed that God has unconditionally elected from all eternity who he's going to save. And that man has no part in it that's ultimately um, springing from his own free will or his own autonomy, um, but rather God is the one who elects, God is the one who saves. Uh, the Reformed confessions were all at one on this particular subject. The Arminian remonstrance that came up uh, in the Netherlands there over which the Synod of Dort, uh, Dort met um, was a repudiation of that idea, and they were really wanting to take a giant step backwards towards uh, Rome. Uh, and really trying to locate the decisive factor within man. Uh, I've already showed you last time we looked at the remonstrance. Their view of predestination is not that what Scripture says, which is that God predestines individuals. Uh, they, they say God predestined um, conditions. He predestined that those who believe could go to heaven and things like that. So it really uh, entirely removes the concept of election and predestination from its biblical roots. And we'll, we'll try to look at that later on. Um, hopefully, or if you look at some of the earlier videos where we looked at unconditional predestination, God doesn't predestine categories. He doesn't predestine a class. Uh, He predestines individuals. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, it's individuals, not their actions, not conditions. It's them. They are predestined. And so that's a very important biblical fact that's not going to go away. No matter how much people don't like that idea, it's not going to go away. Okay, article number five under the heading of human corruption. The inadequacy of the law. Neither can the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, delivered by God to his peculiar people, the Jews, by the hands of Moses, save men. Okay, so we the, the law of God, 
Uh, it's wonderful. It's just, holy, righteous. Uh, it has tremendous benefits and values, but we can't be saved by keeping it. It's not able to do that. For though it reveals the greatness of sin and more and more convinces man thereof, yet as it neither points out a remedy nor imparts strength to extricate him from this misery, but being weak through the flesh leaves the transgressor under the curse, man cannot by this law obtain saving grace. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. The law was given primarily, as Paul says in Galatians and, and Romans, to show man his sinfulness and to show him that he needs salvation from another's righteousness. And the law of God has no enabling or saving power in it. All it does is command and threaten. And because we're sinful, um, it's of no use to us in terms of being made right with God. Um, it's useful to the natural man, it's useful to the world, in that it, uh, it does curb sin some, and it restrains evil somewhat in society. Uh, but it has no life-changing or saving power in it. It only inflicts its, its curse upon us. Article number six, the saving power of the gospel. What therefore neither the innate understanding nor the law could do, that, that God performs by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation which is the glad tidings concerning the Messiah, by means whereof it has pleased God to save such as believe as well under the Old as under the New Testament. Okay, so because the law can't save us, we look to Christ to save us. Okay, Article 7, God's freedom in revealing this gospel. This is a very important point. This mystery of his will, God revealed to but a small number under the Old Testament. Under the New Testament, the distinction between various peoples having been removed, he reveals it to many. The cause of this dispensation is not to be ascribed to the superior worth of one nation above another, nor to their better use of the innate understanding of God, but results wholly from the sovereign good pleasure and unmerited love of God. Hence, they to whom so great and so gracious a blessing is communicated, above their desert, or rather, notwithstanding their demerits, are bound to acknowledge it with humble and grateful hearts, and with the apostle to adore but in no wise curiously to pry into the severity and justice of God's judgments displayed in others to whom this grace is not given. See, one of the problems that, that we have with those who, who have devoted their existence to opposing quote-unquote Calvinism on YouTube and on the internet is that they really just do not understand what grace is. They don't understand what grace is. Grace is unconditional election. If you lose the doctrine of unconditional election, you cannot argue that we're saved by grace alone. It, it, it is not grace alone. If we cast the decisive factor in our own salvation, we are not saved by grace then. Ultimately, in the final analysis, we're saving ourselves. You could say, well, but, but you couldn't do it without it, without grace. It's, it's needed. Yeah, Mormonism teaches that. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. Islam teaches everything is made possible through the grace and mercy of Allah. But that's not divine revelation, and that's not what the scriptures teach. Okay, We are not allowed to call God into judgment and, and cross-examine him and say, well, we don't, this doesn't make us feel good. We don't like this idea. Now, the fact is, man is far worse than so many are willing to say, and the grace of God is so much greater than most have ever even imagined. Okay, Article 8, Article eight The Serious Call of the Gospel. As many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called, meaning there's no lie to it at all. They are truly called. 
For God has most earnestly and truly declared his word what is acceptable to him, namely, that those who are called should come unto him. He also seriously promises rest of soul and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. So often people think, well, if we don't know who the elect are, then we can't really tell people the truth. No, it is absolutely positively in every single case true. If you come to Christ, you will be saved. Okay, we don't go out trying to discern, well, who are the elect? Who are the elect? You preach Christ and him crucified and you indiscriminately offer to people. You call them to repentance and faith. You, you say God will save you and forgive you if you repent and believe the gospel. Okay, Article 9, human responsibility for rejecting the gospel. It is not the fault of the gospel, nor of Christ offered therein, nor of God, who calls men by the gospel and confers upon them various gifts that those who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and be converted. The fault lies in themselves. Okay, ultimately, ultimately, it's our fault. When we sin, every time we sin, it's our fault. Now, I know that doesn't, that's, that's not going to go over very well in our culture today where everybody's a victim. Everyone thinks that they're a victim of their parents or a victim of circumstance or a victim of their church or, or whatever, But the fact is, every sinful act that I ever do in my life, I cannot blame on anyone but me. I cannot blame what I do on anyone. Okay, so as much as our culture and everybody there wants to have a therapist to tell them that every bad decision they've ever made is actually someone else's fault, it's still their fault. Every sin they've ever committed is someone else's fault, it's still their fault. It's still our fault. When I sin, when I do things that are wrong, it's no one's fault but my own. When people reject Christ and reject the gospel, it's not, well, they, you know, they weren't one of the elect. They really wanted to believe, but, but by golly, they just couldn't because they weren't one of God's elect. That's not how it works at all. If a person is not one of God's elect, they will never, ever have any sincere desire to come to Christ. None. Now, they, they may become generally interested in the benefits of religion without God. Oh, sure. All, all sorts of people have interest in things like that. But admitting their utter helplessness and throwing themselves on the mercy of Christ and wanting to turn from sin, they'll never have those desires. Okay, so the fault lies in themselves because of their willful, loving enslavement to sin, they will not come to Christ. The fault lies in themselves. Some of whom, when called, regardless of their danger, reject the word of life. Others, though they receive it, suffer it not to to make a lasting impression on their heart. Therefore, their joy, arising only from a temporary faith, soon vanishes, and they fall away, while others choke the seed of the word by perplexing cares and the pleasures of this world, and produce no fruit. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Okay, Article 10, conversion is the work of God. But that others who are called by the gospel obey the call and are converted is not to be ascribed to the proper exercise of free will whereby one distinguishes himself above others, equally furnished with grace sufficient for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. Now, you got to get this. If you say that the thing, the, the decisive factor in one person who goes to heaven and another who goes to hell, the decisive thing, the thing that made the difference was something they did autonomously and independently from God, that is a grounds for boasting, and ultimately, men are their own saviors, and they, they save themselves. 
as, as the council father said here, they, they used their free will properly. They used prevenient grace properly and, and distinguished themselves to be above others who were equally furnished with grace, sufficient for their own conversion. And they say, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. Okay, they, they recognized what, what the Arminian remonstrance was, was Pelagian. They're saying man, ultimately, in the final analysis, when you boil it all down and burn away the grace and all the lip service to Jesus, to grace, to prevenient grace, to whatever you want to call it, what is the thing that makes the difference in a person's salvation? Yes, yeah, it's, it's all made possible by Christ. I know you want to say that, but, but what is the thing that really makes the difference? Is something that a person does autonomously, independently of God, of themselves, and therefore there's, a, there's grounds for pride and for boasting. Listen, but it must be wholly ascribed to God who, as he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he calls them effectually in time, confers upon them faith and repentance, rescues them from the power of darkness, and translates them into the kingdom of his own Son, that they may show forth the praises of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may glory not in themselves but in the Lord, according to the testimony of the apostles in various places. Okay, Article 11. The Holy Spirit's work in conversion. But when God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect, or works in them true conversion, he not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them, and powerfully illuminates their minds by his Holy Spirit, that they, might, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hard, hardened heart, and circumcises that with which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which, though heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory, and render, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that, like a good tree, it may bear, bring forth the fruits of good actions. Okay, I can't tell you how important that, that theological concept. We're going to get to the text of Scripture here in just a moment. Right now they're just setting forth, here's what, here's what the biblical doctrine is saying. Okay? God has to change a person's heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus couldn't believe it any more than the Arminians can believe it. And the semi-Pelagian people today and the, the followers of um, the, what they are calling traditionalism in the Southern Baptist Convention and the followers of Leighton Flowers can't, can't understand. That God has to do this change. If he doesn't do it, uh, we're not going to bear any good fruit at all. If he doesn't change the bad tree into a good tree, it's not going to bear any good fruit. Okay, Article 12, Regeneration, a Supernatural Work. And this is that regeneration so highly extolled in Scripture, that renewal, new creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive, which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise effected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion, or such a mode of operation that, after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted, but it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that it all in whose, hearts, in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active 
Wherefore also man himself is rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. You know, and there's a, a wonderful text of scripture that rem- actually reminds me of a, of a lot of text of scripture. Um, but there's a, a passage in Acts, Acts 17 or 18, 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. See now, what would what would the other side say? Yeah, grace made it possible. <laughs> they had believed through grace, but that's not what it says. Grace is the cause here, not well. He gives that grace to everybody, and then they can choose for themselves. It's not what this, it's not what it says. They believed through grace. Okay, well, I can tell you from my part, um, having once believed that it was that I was smarter than unbelievers who had heard the same messages that I had heard, that they were just too dull, uh, and then recognizing, no, God is the one who made the difference. God is the one who opened your heart. God is the one who softened your hard heart and convicted you of your sin. And God called you to himself, not hoping you'd take him up on the offer, but called you to himself in the sense of bringing you to your, to himself effectually, powerfully, resurrecting me and my dead soul. Article 13, the incomprehensible way of regeneration. The manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life. Nevertheless, they are satisfied to know and experience that by this grace of God, they are enabled to believe with the heart and to love their Savior. Article 14, the way God gives faith. Faith is therefore to be considered as the gift of God not on account of its being offered by God to man to be accepted or rejected at his pleasure, which is what the other side is saying, but because it is in reality conferred upon him, breathed and infused into him, nor even because God bestows the power or ability to believe and then expects that man should, by the exercise of his own free will, consent to the terms of salvation and actually believe in Christ, but because he who works in man both to will and to work, and indeed all things in all, produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Article 15, responses to God's grace. God is under no obligation to confer this grace upon any. If only people got that, I think that would be really useful. God is under no obligation to confer this grace upon any. For how can he be indebted to one who had no previous gifts to bestow as a foundation for such recompense? Nay, how can he be indebted to one who has nothing of his own but sin and falsehood? He, therefore, who becomes the subject of this grace, owes eternal gratitude to God and gives him thanks forever. And I want to, just as a personal testimony, I fought and fought and fought against the idea that God chose me and that God predestined me to eternal life. And I mean, I fought against that for a long time until... You, find, you, you just get sick of looking for ways to, to diffuse the scores, the, the avalanche of scripture that says that clearly. And I remember really bearing down on me, God could have left you in your sins, and he should have left you in your sins, but he didn't. And my heart has overflowed with gratitude in a way it never had before. When you really understand, it's really grace. Like, it's grace in that we attribute all of it to God, our faith, our repentance, the cross work of Christ, all of it is to God's glory. And I'm simply, I was the rebel sinner who wanted no part of it. And God came after me, elected me by name individually from all eternity. And the only reason that I repented and believed and am saved. And the thing that makes me different from someone who rejects Christ 
is not that I made better use of my free will or made better use of prevenient grace or something like that. The difference is that God chose to give Christ the fairness that was due to me and to give me mercy instead. The people that are bypassed and go to hell, that's where they want to go. That's where they deserve to go. And they wouldn't have it any other way. Okay, this article goes on. Whoever is not made partaker thereof is either altogether, regardless of these spiritual gifts and satisfied with his own condition, or is in no apprehension of danger and vainly boasts the possession of that which he has not. Further, with respect to those who outwardly profess their faith and amend their lives, we are bound, after the example of the apostle, to judge and speak of them in the most favorable manner. For the secret recesses of the heart are unknown to us. And as to others who have not yet been called, it is our duty to pray for, to them, pray for them to God, who calls the things that are not as if they were, but we are in no wise to conduct ourselves toward them with haughtiness as if we had made ourselves to differ. See, what is, what is the Arminian system? What is really all, every form of Pelagian and semi-Pelagian theology that's out there? You can extol grace and give lip service to the necessity of grace all you want. At the end of the day, if those systems are correct, which they are not, and they're not taught in scripture anywhere, but if they were, we would become haughty. I mean, when you're in heaven, if you're an Arminian, if you're a semi-Pelagian, if you're a traditionalist, and you don't believe that there's a decree of election, you could say, I'm in heaven because of what I did. I, the thing that the reason I'm here and those people are down there in hell is because of what I did independently on my on my own. Yes, God, God made it all possible. Thanks for making it possible. But the decisive thing was me, what I did of myself, and that's why I'm in heaven. And those poor blokes are down there in hell. They didn't do what I did because I'm better than they are. We are in no wise to conduct ourselves toward them with haughtiness, as if we had made ourselves to differ. When you see a non-believer, there you are. Apart from grace. You know, there but for the grace of God. That's me. Article 16, Regeneration's Effects. But as man, by the fall, did not cease to be a creature endowed with understanding and will, nor did sin which pervaded the whole race of mankind deprive him of the human nature, but brought upon him depravity and spiritual death, so also this grace of regeneration does not treat men as senseless stocks and blocks, nor take away their will and its properties, or do violence thereunto, Okay, stop right there. God doesn't force us to believe. He changes our hearts so that we desire to believe. Okay, that's such an important point. But it spiritually quickens, heals, corrects, and at the same time sweetly and powerfully bends it, that where carnal rebellion and resistance formerly prevailed, a ready and sincere spiritual obedience begins to reign, in which the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consist. Wherefore, unless the admirable author of every good work so deal with us, Man can have no hope of being able to rise from his fall by his own free will, by which, in a state of innocence, he plunged himself into ruin. Really, what's behind everything here is just the denial of original sin. I mean, there, there's a reason that traditionalists talk about things like an age of accountability and things like that. They don't have a doctrine of original sin. Uh, they don't believe that that man, um, yeah, he was certainly affected affected by the fall, but not in the way that Scripture says he was. Okay, Article 17, God's use of means in regeneration. As the almighty operation of God whereby he brings forth and supports this, our natural life does not exclude, but requires the use of means by which God of his infinite mercy and goodness has chosen to exert his influence. So also the aforementioned supernatural operation of God by which we are regenerated in no wise excludes or subverts the use of the gospel. 
which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and food of the soul. Wherefore, as the apostles and the teachers who succeeded them piously instructed the people concerning this grace of God to his glory and to the abasement of all pride, and in the meantime, however, neglected not to keep them, by the holy admonitions of the gospel, under the influence of the word, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical discipline, so even now it should be far from those who give or receive instruction in the church to presume to tempt God by separating what he of his good pleasure has most intimately joined together. For grace is conferred by means of admonitions, and the more readily we perform our duty, the more clearly is favor of God working in us usually manifests itself. And the more directly his work is advanced, to whom alone all the glory, both for the means and for their saving fruit and efficacy, is forever due. Amen. Okay, now we move into the rejection of errors. Having set forth the orthodox teaching, the synod rejects the errors of those, number one, who teach that it cannot properly be said that original sin in itself suffices to condemn the whole human race or to deserve temporal and eternal punishments. So they're rejecting people who deny original sin. That original sin by itself is sufficient to condemn the entire human race to hell for eternity. Adam's sin in the garden and the corruption of our nature that flows from it is enough by itself, apart from any actual transgressions that we do, is enough to condemn the whole human race. For these contradict the apostle who declares, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. I want you to see this here. Let me point my uh, my little camera thing here at uh, Bible Works. I want you to see this in Romans five twelve. Romans five verse twelve. Um, the uh, end of the verse here. Um, Pontus uh, hemarton, um, ponta, all, and hemarton have sinned. When Adam sinned. All sinned. Death spread to the whole human race because in that one act of disobedience, we all sinned. And that's why human beings of all ages are capable of death. It's one of the things that Augustine pointed out against Pelagius. He said, the great, and before we even look at scripture, uh, although we do learn from scripture, the wages of sin is death. What is the greatest empirical, observational refutation of, of a denial of original sin? Of the fact that we inherit Adam's guilt? The death of infants. If you're going to say, no, 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 we, we don't inherit the guilt of Adam's first sin, why are infants capable of dying then? Why are infants able to die? They, they're able to die because when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. Um, we're in no position to call anything God does unfair. Um, but if you're going to say, I don't like the idea that uh, Adam's sin is imputed to me and credited to my account, then why are you okay with Christ's righteousness being credited to your account if, as a Christian? Okay. The judgment came of one unto condemnation, Romans 5, 16, and the wages of sin is death. Okay, so if we um, inherit Adam's guilt, which we do, and the corruption of the nature that he has, which is due, uh, which we do, um, that's enough for us to be condemned even if we never commit an actual sin. Number two, we reject the errors of those who teach that the spiritual gifts or the good qualities and virtues, such as goodness, holiness, righteousness, could not belong to the will of man when he was first created, and that these, therefore, cannot have been separated therefrom in the fall. For such is contrary to the description of the image of God, which the apostle gives in Ephesians 4.24, where he declares that it consists in righteousness and holiness, which undoubtedly belong to the will. Okay? So, 
what this what this particular error uh, was saying. Okay, th- think about what it says again. That the spiritual gifts or the good qualities and virtues, such as goodness, holiness, righteousness, could not belong to the will of man when he was first created, and that these therefore cannot have been separated therefrom in the fall. Okay, man was created in righteousness and holiness, and that did um, also describe our wills. It, it did describe our wills, and when we lost that righteousness and holiness, the, the will lost it too. See, the Arminians were trying to protect the, the island of righteousness. Our will was not affected by, by the fall. Everything else was but, but our will, and that's not just not true. Okay, number three, who teach, we reject the errors of those who teach that in spiritual death, here, let me pull, let me point this back at the Kindle so you can see it if you're following along that way. Hello, there it is. Who teach that in spiritual death, the spiritual gifts are not separate from the will of man, since the will in itself has never been corrupted, but only hindered through the darkness of the understanding and the irregularity of the affections. Okay, stop right there. Here, here's where you really get to one of the key points here. The Arminians and semi-Pelagians, everybody that tries to say that in salvation there is no decree of election, the will of man in the ultimate sense is free, and we decide for ourselves if we're going to heaven or, heaven or hell, there is no decree of election. Really, um, what they're denying here is the fall, is original sin. And people, people can say all they want. Well, we do believe that the fall affected man and that he has a sinful tendency now. Not that he's entirely corrupt, but that he just has a sinful tendency, but is still able to do good and to choose the good. And biblically speaking, that's just not the case. Listen to the, the response to this. <clears throat> Let me read the rest of the, the thing there. And that these hindrances having been removed, the will can then bring into operation its native powers. That is, that the will of itself is able to will and to choose or not to will and not to choose all manner of good which may be presented to it. This is an innovation and an error, and tends to elevate the powers of the free will contrary to the declaration of the prophet, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And of the apostle, among whom, the sons of disobedience, also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay? Okay, next one who teach, we reject the errors of those who teach that the unregenerate man is not really nor utterly dead in sin, nor destitute of all powers unto spiritual good, but that he can yet hunger and thirst after righteousness and life and offer the sacrifice of a contrite and broken spirit, which is pleasing to God. They respond, for these things are contrary to the express testimony of scripture. You were dead through your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually, Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21. Moreover, to hunger and thirst after deliverance from misery and after life, and to offer unto God the sacrifice of a broken spirit, is peculiar to the regenerate and those that are called blessed. Okay? So if you do have a sincere desire to turn from your misery to turn from sin to unto righteousness and unto the lord jesus and you have a true hunger and thirst for real righteousness in your life that can only be because the regenerating work of the holy spirit has already taken place in you okay now um we'll get into the rest of this we'll pick up at point number five under the rejection of errors here we're at the 30 minute mark but uh thank you all for watching or for listening 
Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday School for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.